Well, having moved here uh, from Houston, Texas in 2015, one of the things that I have been the most struck by, the most impacted by, uh, is the truly four discernible seasons that you have here in Maryland. In Texas, we have about two and a half. We have reasonably hot, blisteringly hot, and then like a week of kind of cold. And that's about all the seasons we get uh, in Texas. At least part of Texas, we're from East Texas, flat, just plains. Houston is a giant concrete slab with a lot of buildings on it. Um, So when we moved here and we experienced the first kind of cycle of seasons, the colors of fall and the true cold gray of winter and the new life of spring and then the warmth and brightness of summer, it's been eye-opening. It's been kind of, it's it's kind of woken me up in some ways that that I didn't expect. My very favorite cycle of seasons in Maryland is winter to spring. And it's not because winter is my favorite season. It's because the transformation of the earth from winter to spring is so beautiful and and powerful. So we've been here now for two of these winter to spring cycles. And the stark contrast between January and, say, April is staggering to me. There's winter with its cold air and, and stinging wind. It's snow and gray skies. It's barren trees, grass that refuses to grow. And then slowly but surely, the gray gray skies start to yield to to blue, and the stinging wind softens to a gentle breeze. Songbirds who hid away for the winter begin once again to greet the rising sun. The dead ground begins to yield to new life. The best illustration that I can see on a regular basis of this transformation is a cherry blossom tree in my backyard. So in January, in the winter, it is leafless, it's lifeless, it's nothing but a bunch of sticks like aiming at the sky. It's just brown and dead and there's nothing to it. But come March and April, it begins to sprout these beautiful, playful little white and pink uh, blossoms and and pretty soon it's in full bloom and there's just these white blossoms all over this tree. By now the blossoms have turned uh, to green leaves and it's not quite as uh, not quite as appealing. But for a couple of weeks there's this white blossomed tree in my backyard that is truly stunning. And to watch the tra- the earth transform, the earth give way and set aside the cold, dead gray of winter in favor of this new life and the brightness and the beauty of spring is powerful to behold. Well, that's exactly what we're going to see in the next several chapters of John's gospel. We're going to see uh, the gospel writers going to show us how Jesus came and set aside an old system, the old way of approaching God with its laws and its requirements of obedience and promises of blessing and curses, depending on that obedience. He's going to set that aside in favor of a new and better path to a restored relationship with God, namely the way of faith, the way of simple trust in Jesus and no longer these rituals and routines uh, that gain us access to God. So what I want to do before we go to our passage today is zoom out a little bit and show you kind of the big picture of the Gospel of John. So we'll start to understand how the texts that we'll look at today and in these coming weeks fit into the structure of what John is trying to do. And I want to do that because John is not just 
randomly sort of stream of consciousness like writing whatever comes to his mind about Jesus. He has a very intentional structure uh, and an intentional system uh, that he is going through in order to tell us. Remember, in the, at the end of the book, he tells us what he's doing. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I am writing of these signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he's going to very systematically and intentionally organize the life and ministry of Jesus to do this very thing. So I found this really cool uh, graphic by the way, this is just called the Bible Project, the BibleProject.org, I think. There's tons of awesome resources there. You should check it out. Uh, and so they haven't done this for every book of the Bible yet, but they've done it for some. So on the, here's the Gospel of John in broadest view. So you've got chapter one over here, which is this introduction where he kind of says, you know, Jesus was uh, the eternal son of God and he came into the world in human flesh and his own didn't receive him and all that. Then you have basically chapters two through 12 uh, theologians and scholars have started have kind of called this the book of signs because in these fir this first half or so of the book, John records for us seven miracles, seven signs that Jesus performs to reveal his glory and his identity. And so the first half of the book of John is these miracles and signs and how people respond to them. And then the second half of the book, starting in chapter 13 and going to the end, is called the book of glory. And that's where Jesus is going to explain to his disciples his mission and the meaning of the cross and his death and resurrection. They won't quite get it just yet, but he has several chapters of explaining uh, what he's doing. And then, of course, there's the narrative, the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then a brief kind of epilogue where we see Jesus with some of his disciples after he's raised. And so that's the broad uh, structure of John's Gospels, the book of signs in chapters 1 through 12, and then the book of glory in chapters 13 through 21. Well, what he does in these few chapters that we're going to start looking at today uh, is he's going to start showing how Jesus engages with some, some central and important Jewish institutions and festivals. And there's four institutions and four festivals that he will talk about. Let's zoom in just a little bit, Jen, on this next slide. So this is chapters two through four of the Gospel of John. In the upper left, he's gonna, Jesus is going to appear at a wedding. And that's what we're going to study today. We're going to see Jesus in a wedding in Cana, one of these kind of classic uh, institutions of Judaism. And so then after that, next week, we'll actually look at Jesus uh, cleansing the temple. So the temple being the central place of, of the worship of God, where the Jews believe that God dwelt and that's where they would go to make their sacrifices and their prayers. And so he's, we're going to see Jesus interact with the temple. Uh, in chapter 3, we're going to see him interact with a rabbi, a rabbi being a teacher of the law. Again, one of these staple institutions within the Jewish uh, religion. Uh, and Jesus has this interaction with a rabbi by the name of Nicodemus uh, that totally turns his understanding of God upside down. And then in chapter 4, he'll deal with a sacred well, a well that's been sort of claimed by the fathers of these of the inhabitants there, and he's going to meet with a woman there of Samaria at this well and speak about uh, how, again, what, what the well was thought to provide is being set aside in favor of what Jesus himself is providing with, with this living water. So over the next several weeks, this is where we're going to be. We're going to see Jesus engaging with these four sort of Jewish institutions. And then after that, we'll see him engage with uh, these Jewish festivals, the Sabbath and the Feast of Tabernacles and Hanukkah 
And there's another one that I've forgotten for right now. Uh, at any rate, so we're going to go back to the text now in John chapter 2. And this is where we're going to be today. So I want to start actually by reading the last verse of this section to give us a clue as to how to read it before we actually read through the text. So if you've got a Bible, turn to, to cha uh, chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, which I think is page 736. Am I right about that? In the uh, story ESV Bible, if that's the one you're looking at. So John chapter 2. Now look down at verse 11, if you will. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. So we see that, first of all, that this is the first miracle that Jesus has performed. The very first miracle, which is a little bit hard to believe. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit hard to, to get your mind around that because he was born as God's son, right? He was, he was eternal God who came into the earth in human flesh as an infant. And so he grew and he lived an entire childhood and adolescence and young adulthood that we don't have any record of. The Bible says very little about his childhood, except uh, there's an episode of him going to being found in the temple, uh, talking with the scribes and scholars about the law. And then there's a statement in the Gospel of Luke about him growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. But beyond that, there's not very much written in the Gospels about Jesus' sort of young years, his childhood and his adolescence. But because John tells us this is the first sign that he performed, you can know for sure that his childhood and his adolescence and his adulthood were not filled with supernatural displays and miraculous showings off of all the cool things that he could do, right? You, you, you always wonder, like, I wonder if Jesus as a kid was, you know, like, just doing crazy stuff, bringing, and there's actually writings that I think are not, they're not to be trusted, they're not seen as authoritative. There are writings of Jesus as a child, like, taking clay pigeons and bringing them to life and, and things like that. Well, this would stand in direct contradiction to that and say, no, Jesus didn't perform any miracles until uh, this time. So he's about 30 and it's the very beginning of his ministry. So the, his baptism by John the Baptist and this first sign in Cana really truly marks the beginning of his public ministry. So this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and here's the phrase, and manifested his glory. Manifested just means revealed. So he performed this first sign and it revealed his glory. And remember again the theme of John's gospel. I'm writing these signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus, so John's intention in recording these signs, beginning with this one, is that we would see the identity of Jesus, that we would see and recognize Jesus as the Son of God and as the promised Messiah. So we need to read this story with that understanding that Jesus is revealing himself and his identity in some way through this miracle. And you remember as well in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So we're looking for his glory. As we read this story, that's what we need to have our eye on. How does this happening, this sign at this wedding reveal the glory of Jesus. So let's read uh, this passage. I will read from John, chap John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and you can follow along with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the first thing we're going to do is just go through the story. What is the, the, the scene here as it unfolds? And we'll see some of the details that give us a better understanding of what exactly is happening. So just on the surface, what is happening in this story? And then we'll talk about the significance what, is it, what does it mean? And, and answer the question, how does this reveal Jesus' glory? So the first thing to note is that it begins on the third day. It says on the third day, there was a wedding. On the third day from what? Well, I believe it's on the third day from the account we just read about in, at the end of chapter one, where Nathaniel encountered Jesus. And Jesus said, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Uh, and when you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you, I saw you. And Nathanael says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And so then it says the third day. I think it's the third day from that event, which tells us that the events of John chapter 1, verse 19, where John the Baptist is sort of making his pronouncements about his ministry and who Jesus is through the calling of the first disciples and then this account, this wedding in Cana, all of this takes place within a week. Because each of those passages said in the next day, and then the next day, and then we have, and the third day. In other words, three days out from that event. So within a week, these events uh, are, have taken place in, sequ in sequence. So there's a wedding in Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited with his disciples. Now that tells us that probably the wedding was people that were friends or family members of Jesus himself, of his earthly family. Because remember, he was born to Mary, who was married to a man named Joseph. And so he did have an earthly family and in fact, other uh, brothers as well, which are mentioned down in verse 12. Uh, and so it's probably a family member, a cousin or something, uh, because Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been invited to this wedding and Jesus himself has been invited to the wedding. Now, the thing to keep in mind about weddings and there's celebrations in our day, and, you know, wedding is a big deal, and the wedding day, you know, is the big special thing. But in this day and time, in this culture, a wedding was a much bigger deal. A wedding was a socially and religiously important event, and the celebration of a wedding could last up to a week. So this is days of feasting and partying and and I read somewhere that, uh, that there was a tradition of basically the, the newly married couple having basically an open house for the first week of their uh, marriage, 
which I'm not sure how healthy that sounds to me, but, uh, but people could just come in and out and bring gifts and, oh, we just wanted to come and say hello and see the new digs and all that. Um, so anyway, a wedding in Palestine in this day was a big, long social and religious ceremony. Everybody was there. Everybody knew about it. And uh, it was a, a key time of celebration. Now, with that in mind, and with the, no, the knowledge that this culture placed an extremely high value on hospitality, and in fact, Middle Eastern cultures to this day place a very high value on hospitality, the notion that the host of this party, who it seems to be is the groom himself, would run out of wine is a shameful reality. It's not just, oops, that's embarrassing, I need to run down to Costco and grab another box of Franzia or whatever, right? This is like... This is a big deal that the host of this party did not plan appropriately for his wedding guests. This would be extremely embarrassing to him and probably a cause of long-standing shame in his society and in the village where he lived. And so the fact that there's no more wine is bad news for this groom and for his uh, new bride as well. So Jesus is there in the midst of this wedding. And of course, we don't get a lot of commentary about what's happening during the wedding, but we know that this, I mean, this is a party. It's a, it's a week-long reception where people are uh, having a good time and enjoying each other. And Jesus is right there. And I don't think Jesus is like in a corner hiding himself and just being kind of this awkward presence. I think Jesus was probably enjoying the festivities, right? I think Jesus was probably uh, talking with people and laughing and having a good time along with his uh, followers and, and his family. Uh, and I, and I want, it makes me wonder, you know, is Jesus the kind of guy that you would invite to your wedding? Yeah. Excellent. I'm glad you would invite him. Uh, so would you want Jesus of Nazareth to attend your wedding reception? And I think how you answer that question may say a good deal about your conception of who Jesus is, who you imagine him to be. Like, he's going to be the stick in the mud and he's going to be glaring at everybody and making sure they don't have a very good time. So I don't want to invite him. Or do you think that Jesus might be more like the life of the party? Like more like he's in the middle of it all, mixing it up with people. I think it's just an interesting reflection. So Jesus is in the middle of this, these wedding festivities and his mother comes to him in verse three. Here's the crisis. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, that is to Jesus, they have no wine. And again, as this is an occasion for significant embarrassment and shame on the part of the groom who's hosting this party, uh, Jesus is going to engage with, with compassion, with, with sympathy, and, and, and step in and meet the need uh, to avoid the, the shame and embarrassment of, uh, of the groom. Now, Mary's request, and she really doesn't ask anything explicitly, she just makes a statement. Hey, Jesus, they don't have any wine. But there's clearly a request implied in that statement, right? They have no more wine. And what are you going to do about it? It's kind of the implied uh, question at the end of that. And Jesus' response is very interesting. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? That sounds really rude to us, doesn't it? You think, Wow, he's talking to his mom like that? Like, I'd get slapped around if I said that to my mom, right? I think that the English here is harder than the Greek is. So, woman, we usually don't say woman unless we're, like, trying to put you in your place, right? 
And then you quickly get put back in your place if you use it that way. So, but, but Jesus doesn't use woman in that way. It's really just, it's formal. It's, it's polite. So it isn't a rude statement, but it is not a familiar personal statement. Um, the NIV translation actually softens the English to dear woman. I think they're trying to bring out the idea that Jesus isn't like insulting his mom here in, uh, in responding to her request. Uh, but at any rate, uh, he's not harsh, he's not rude, but he is kind of distant. There is a little bit of a, a, he's placing a distance here, I think, to make a point. So when he says, what does this have to do with me, or why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come, which we'll talk more about that statement in a little bit. But then, what's, he's going to do something about it anyway, isn't he? I think he's kind of trying to say, I'm going to engage in the situation and meet the need in my own way, in the way that my father who sent me is calling me to do. So I think he's kind of pointing out here, I will engage, I will intervene, I will help, but not because you told me to, because I am under the authority, not of my earthly mother, but of my heavenly father. And remember, Jesus is a grown man at this time as well. He's 30 years old. If you said that to your mom at 12, I'll do it my own way. I hope you end up in your room for a while or something. Uh, so Jesus says, I will do this in my way. And I think that kind of means by the way that the Father tells me to do. And Mary apparently trusts him. And so she turns away from him and she says to the servants, do whatever he says. Whatever he tells you, do it. So she knows there's something communicated there non-verbally where she knows, okay, Jesus is going to help. And she tells the servants, do whatever he says. However he wants to do it, go for it. And so here we have the sign itself down in verses 6 through 9. So in verse 6, we read about six stone water jars uh, that were there for the rites of purification, uh, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons. So these are large stone vats of water. So 120 to 180 gallons, depending on uh, the specific size of each one. Verse 7, we find out that he tells them to fill them, and so they do, and they fill them to the brim. We have that detail. So these stone jugs are filled all the way until they're just about overflowing. And then verse 8, he says, draw it out and take it to like the head waiter. He calls him the master of the feast. So this would be the guy who's kind of responsible for serving people and getting food and, and drink uh, to the, the guests at the wedding. And so he, they take this water now become wine. We don't even actually see the, the miracle itself happen. We just find that it has happened because they dip the water and they bring it to him and it has now become wine. And so he tastes it uh, and he says, so most, most wedding hosts serve better wine to begin with when people's palates are a little more sensitive, they're more likely to be aware of the, the quality of the wine. And then after they've drunk freely, probably meaning maybe a little bit too much, they don't even notice, right? And then the host brings out some cheaper wine because he's trying to cut costs. So he brings out some cheaper wine when his guests aren't going to know the difference. because They're like, just bring some more wine. I don't care, right? But you, again, assuming that the groom is actually the one who's provided this wine because he doesn't know. We had that detail. He didn't know where it came from. He assumes the groom provided this wine and says, you have kept the good wine until now. So clearly the wine that Jesus created was of a higher quality and made the others uh, inferior by comparison. 
And so you've kept the good wine until now. So there, there's the, that's the story, right? It ends there. We don't have any more details about, it doesn't even look like the rest of the wedding guests even knew that Jesus had done this miracle. Obviously the servants who had filled the water jugs um, and, and were following his instructions knew what had happened. It tells us that in verse nine there. Uh, and his disciples know, because down in verse 11, it says his disciples believed in him. So they saw what he did and they believed in him. But it doesn't even look like the rest of the wedding guests had any idea. Because again, the point was Jesus is trying to save the groom embarrassment. And so what's he going to do? Oh, by the way, that one was for me. He ran out. But that totally defeats the purpose, right? So he kind of under the radar performs this miracle to turn this water into wine and doesn't even really get widespread credit for it, except from the servants and from his disciples. And I would add, from the couple of thousand years worth of readers, including us, who will see this passage and see the glory of Jesus. So there's the story. Let's talk about what it means. Let's talk about the significance of this event and of this, uh, this miracle and what happens here. What, what does it mean? Why does it reveal Jesus' glory? And what glory does it reveal? I think there's two layers here. There's a, there's a pretty simple, on-the-surface way to see this, and, and, and we see some things about Jesus clearly revealed to us. And then I think there's a deeper layer, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But on the, the first layer of what this tells us about Jesus, we see at least two things. First of all, his divine power. So he is able to command and manipulate water, the most basic and essential element of, the, of all the material world and of human life. He is able to make water do what he desires that it do. And we can see the ease with which he seems to perform this miracle. He doesn't, there are no incantations or chants or abracadabra or anything like that. There's no rain dances or Jedi hand motions that he waves about over the water. It just happens. He says, fill up the, wa- fill up the jugs, dip out the water. And then by the time it got to the lips of the head waiter, it had to become wine. Like it wasn't difficult for him. And he doesn't even taste test it. Don't you think if you had the ability to perform a trick like this, a miracle like this, you would at least go, let me make sure. Okay, yeah, that's good. Now take it to the head waiter. He doesn't even taste it. He just goes dip it out and take it over there because he knows he's not worried. He's not sweating about whether or not this worked. He simply willed the water to become wine, and it did. And not just wine, but good wine, superior wine. Now, there are many, of course, who uh, have sought to discredit the miracles of Jesus, and indeed all the miracles of the Bible. We're too enlightened to believe that the laws of nature could be suspended like that or whatever. There's books and books that have been written trying to show that All the miracles we read about in the Bible are just kind of wishful thinking on the part of Jesus' followers. And really, if you boil it down to the nugget, Jesus was just a pretty good guy. And then some people added these stories later because we can't bring ourselves to believe, right? We're so scientific and so sophisticated that we couldn't possibly believe that Jesus would perform a miracle like this. And I think the basic answer to that is that's what a fool says. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I think that's kind of the attitude there. If you look at this passage and you say, there's no way that actually happened, you're kind of saying, there's no God. God couldn't really do that. Jesus didn't really have the power to command and manipulate water to become something that it wasn't just by willing it to. That couldn't have happened that way. And I think that is the position 
of a fool. And I don't want to be a fool. And so I want to believe what the Bible tells me. And I want to believe this story as it is presented to us. And so, of course, the fa- if God created the world, if God set up the laws of nature, who's to say that God himself couldn't at any point in time sort of work around those laws or, or revise those laws for a moment to be able to intervene in a miraculous way? So we see clearly the divine power of Jesus. This is a power beyond mere uh, sleight of hand or visual trickery. He actually changed the makeup of H2O into whatever wine is. All right, so he made water into wine, actually changed it from one thing to something else by his divine power. We also see his abundant generosity because first of all, he has compassion on this host. He sees the embarrassment, he sees the shame that is likely to come to him and he intervenes because the groom in this culture apparently is responsible for the provisions and so the failure to adequately provide, again, would be a, a source of, of embarrassment and shame for him. And so Jesus steps in. He's generous in that this is not his problem, but he's going to take it on. He's going to intervene. He's going to stand uh, in for this guy. And he's also, he also sees generosity in how much wine he produced. Because the fact that they've run out of wine probably means they've been partying at least for a couple of days, right? So he didn't plan, a, he didn't prepare enough wine, but surely he had enough for a couple of days worth and there's just, it's lasting longer than expected, or there's more people than expected, or whatever. And so Jesus could have made maybe a vat or two, right? Give me a couple of those six stone pots, and let's fill those up. But he goes, give me all six of them, fill them all the way up, and I'm making 180 gallons of wine, which is probably more than enough for the rest of that party. I might have even left a nice wedding gift uh, for the newly married couple. So we see that Jesus is generous. We see that Jesus goes over and above and beyond. And that's the way that the Lord is. We've seen, I've personally seen the generosity of Jesus in my own life. You know, a couple of years ago when, when my wife and I were making preparations uh, to move here, um, there was so much that we had to get done and so much that we had to acquire. So we were overwhelmed, I mean, by the enormity of the provisions that we would need to secure. So uh, we had to raise a full-time salary so we're, you know, so we had to find people that would support us and donate to our ministry. And so we've got a full-time salary that we've got to somehow uh, secure through donations. We had a home in Houston that we had to sell. Uh, we had to figure out where we were going to live once we moved to Baltimore. We made one trip to Baltimore in the summer and we had about three days to locate something and, and make an offer and hope everything worked out. Um, and by the way, we had about three months to get all this done to raise a full-time salary, sell a house, find a house, and actually move across the country. It was a little intimidating. There was a moment where we had sold our house, or we were about to close on the house that we were selling, and so we had a mover come and load all our stuff on a truck, because we had, anyway. So we had a mover come and load up all our stuff, and we had an offer on a house in Baltimore that we thought was gonna work out, but we weren't quite sure yet. But the mover's here, and our stuff's on a truck, and he's like, where do you want us to take it? And we were like, take it to Baltimore. And so the moving truck drove away from our house with all of our belongings on it, and we're kind of going, I hope that has a place to go. And I hope we have a place to reunite with that somehow when we make it there. And there was about a five-minute period of time between the closing on our house in Houston, where we signed papers and said we no longer 
have any right or access to this house before the house in Baltimore was officially closed on. So there's about five minutes where we were like, I don't know if we're going to have a home to live in or not. And then we got a call, seriously, five minutes after we signed papers saying everything went through and you're good to go. This is God. This is the generosity of God. And a little bit of like showing off on God's part too, right? I'm going to like wait till the, actually a little bit past the last second and require a little bit of faith on your part, right? You're going to have to say goodbye to your stuff. You're going to have to sign away the house and, and pray and trust that it's going to come through. And, and it did. And we were amazed time and time again to see all of these provisions fall into place. Have you experienced the abundant generosity of Jesus in your life? Philippians 4, 19 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If you're in need, call out to Jesus and watch how he will bring his divine power and his generous heart to bear in your life. So we see the abundant generosity and the divine power of Jesus. But there is a deeper meaning. There's another layer uh, that we get to see um, the glory of Jesus displayed in this story. And I'm going to take you back to a couple of details in this text to see what I mean by that. So the first signal in the text that there's a deeper meaning is back in verse 4. This is where he responds to Mary, who says, there's no more wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says this phrase, my hour is not yet come. And I think if you find out what that means, which is what this text begs of us to find out what, what does that mean? What hour? What hour hasn't come? And why would his hour not having come keep him from responding in the way that Mary was maybe expecting him to? So we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to just read to you quickly a few other verses in John where Jesus uses the phrase, my hour or, or the hour. So one of those is in John chapter 7, verse 30. Jesus is speaking and he says, uh, he's teaching in the temple and he says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they're mad at him. In verse 30, he says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So He's about to be arrested and accosted and brought into custody, but nobody could touch him for whatever reason. He escaped or whatever because his hour had not yet come. The very same word, the very same phrase. In John chapter 8, verse 20, very same kind of thing. They're asking him, where is your father? Who is your father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. And then verse 20 says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Same kind of situation. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Hmm. Okay. There's a pattern here. No one's able to capture him or arrest him because his hour hasn't come. Down in chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus speaking to his disciples and to the, Philip brings some uh, Greek people to, to Jesus and he tells them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Okay, well that, that tells us a little more. 
So the hour seems to be the glorification of Jesus, whatever that is. And down just a few verses later, he tells his disciples, now is my soul troubled because he's looking at what's about to happen to him. This is at the end of his ministry. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What hour is he talking about? There's an hour that is coming for him that prevents him from being arrested. When people are trying to get him, he's able to like kind of miraculously duck out of crowds without being noticed because his hour hadn't come yet. And then there's this moment of the, the, the hour of my glory, my glorification is coming. And then he's anxious about it. That he's looking at what's coming and he says, my soul is troubled. So what am I going to say? God, Father, get me out of this. Save me from this hour. No, I've come to this hour for uh, this purpose. Father, glorify thy name. This is the hour of his death. This is the hour of the crucifixion of Jesus upon the cross for sinners. So the hour is a divinely appointed time at which Jesus would be hung on a cross and raised up in that sense and take upon himself the sins of his people and glorify God in that way. Now this gives us a key insight into the mind of Jesus. Because now we're back three years earlier at the wedding in Cana and he is answering his mother who says they're out of wine. And he says, my hour has not yet come. At the very beginning of his ministry, this very first miracle that he is about to perform, he is looking to the cross. He already has his divine mission to die for sinners on his mind. And he is aware at all times, not only of the need of the moment, like more wine, but of the ultimate need of all people, the need for true redemption, forgiveness of sins, and reconciliation to God. He's aware that it is his death, his blood that will pave the way for this reconciliation. And so the way that he responds and what he does by turning this water into wine in the way that he does it specifically has to do with how he saw his mission and his life in relation to the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his glory. The, ne the next signal that there's a, there's a parable level, there's a deeper level here, is in verse 6, where he tells us that there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. These are not just any old jars. They're not drinking jars. These jars were intended for ceremonial washing. Now, the Jews, before a meal, the Jews were, to, were uh, required to wash their hands as well as the dishes and, and things that were used during the meal. But it wasn't for the purpose of sanitation. Like we, we say wash up before dinner because we're afraid you're going to bring your dirt onto your plate or whatever. That, that wasn't so much their concern. Their concern was a... Uh, symbolically cleansing the whole person, cleansing the soul before God. And so they had this ritual of washing themselves in these purification jars. You don't wash yourself in some other kind of a vessel for water. You wash yourself in a purification jar because it's a way of ceremonial, symbolically saying, I am clean now uh, before God. 
The cleansing that takes place, so-called cleansing, through these water pots represents the old covenant, the old system uh, of, of Israel's relationship with God based on law keeping. And they'd even added new rules. <laughs> they'd added all kind, probably hundreds of rules by the time that Jesus is here that God had never even instituted. So Jesus chooses purification jars to change the water into wine. So consider this, Jesus' perpetual awareness of people's ultimate need and the mission of his earthly life culminating in a bloody death on a cross makes the water pots for purification appear utterly vain and futile and foolish and empty. He says elsewhere to the Pharisees in Luke 11, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Your purification rites aren't cutting it. They don't change who you are. Uh, to use Paul's language in Ephesians 2, he says, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus says, your hearts are far from me. It's like you're traveling a path toward destruction and damnation, and all the while you're clinging to your water pots. This is going to make me clean. This is going to make things okay. And it is so vain and foolish. What water pots are you clinging to? What systems, habits, beliefs, superstitions are you holding on to? Thinking, this is, this is going to make things okay. This is going to make me clean. This is going to make me right with God. Is it the water pot of religious duty, church attendance, Bible reading, prayer? The water pot of generosity or charitable giving? The water pot of moral living? The water pot of political influence, social progress, family goals, financial success? Friends, the truth is we're all a broken mess. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And there's one thing and one thing only that can make us clean before God, the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've never made a personal decision to cling to the cross of Jesus and to forsake your water pot, the Bible says you're under the wrath of God and destruction is coming. And that is not a good place to be. If we fast forward to the final phase of Jesus' public ministry, in fact, it's the night before he is led to a cross and nailed there for sinners, Jesus uses wine in another way, a powerful, a poignant way uh, in another setting with his disciples at the Last Supper. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul summarizes what Jesus said to his disciples that night. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, the good wine in John chapter 2, the good wine at the wedding of Cana is the blood of Jesus. It represents 
the blood that he would shed on a cross for sinners to be reconciled to God. It is no accident that the good wine replaces the stale water of the stone water pots for purification. It's as though Jesus is saying to those who have ears to hear, leave your futile attempts to clean yourselves and come to me. Set aside your empty stone water pots and drink the good wine of my blood shed for you. Forget about your feeble efforts to earn your way into God's favor and place yourself by faith under the cleansing flood of my life poured out for you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Peter encourages, exhorts his readers in this way. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as you called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. There's the cleanness factor. To be holy is to be clean, to be pure, to be right before God. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's water pots. The feudal ways inherited from your forefathers is these rites and rituals and systems of cleansing, things that I think are going to make me right with God. You are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So when we see Jesus at this wedding in Cana, and we see Jesus meeting the need of the moment in compassion and generosity and showing his power. We also see Jesus announcing to those who have ears to hear it that the old way has been set aside. The winter, the cold, dead gray of the cleansing rituals of stone water pots have been set aside in favor of the new life, the spring bursting forth and provided and purchased for you by the good wine of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's an old hymn that asks the question, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? I think that's a question each of us has to answer. Am I trusting in his grace this hour? Have I been cleansed by the good wine of the blood of Jesus?